State of the Industry podcast. This episode is brought to you by KP Movement Education, your source for health and movement education and coaching. Whether you are a health or fitness professional, a fitness consumer, or perhaps a passive bystander, KP believes that everyone deserves the right to pain-free movement. That's why their memberships and services are designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to create a culture of movement for yourself and those around you. With two membership options, You'll find education surrounding developing at-home training programs for yourself or for others, mental health and exercise, lifestyle medicine, and much, much more. Check it out at kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. That's kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. Welcome back to the States of the Industry podcast. I am your host, Adam Yangsma. This week's episode is part two of my conversation with the author of The Language of Coaching, Nick Winkleman. For those of you who don't know Nick, Nick is the head of athletic performance and science for the Irish Rugby Football Union. Prior to this, he was the director of education for EXOS, which was formerly Athletes Performance. And that's how I know him. Uh, before his job as the director of education, he was a performance coach where he oversaw the speed and assessment components of the EXOS NFL Combine Development Program. Nick has also supported many athletes in the NFL, the MLB, NBA, national sports organizations, and the military as well. Uh, Nick has presented all over the world, and he speaks primarily on human performance and coaching science, and he has multiple publications as well. If you haven't listened to part one, I highly suggest that you go back and listen to it because it is full of really, really fantastic information, uh, specifically if you're looking to be a better coach and communicate better with your clients and your athletes. If you've already listened to it, then I will see you on the other side. All right, welcome back, Nick, to the State of the Industry podcast, part number two. Part two. I'm really excited to get into this, the verbal side of queuing. We talked about the, the environmental constraints and a little bit more about how we can manage the environment itself. And so now I want to talk a little bit about how we can influence the actual perceiver a little bit more than the environment. And so I wanted to just discuss because I know we need to have a little bit of a background before we dive into sure. what, the rest of the stuff that we want to talk about. When most people think of cues, we think of like internal external cueing. That's commonly what we think of. We think of, okay, squeeze the glutes, right? Something like that. Um, yep. Or stand tall or right. So there's different types of cueing. Can you just talk a little bit about those two types of cueing and the benefits of external cueing specifically for making the changes that we're trying to get stick. Yeah, yeah. So um, again, we've laid a lot of the foundation in part one to be able to get swiftly to understand why the solution around verbal coaching we're about to go through can be, be a benefit but at the same time highlight uh, where the pitfalls are in, let's say, ineffective application of verbal coaching 
And so, as you said there, we already are building a shared vocabulary. We have this perceiver, right? That there's no way to disconnect them from the matrix. There's, there's no unplugging. And so this person's perception and attention is, is always going to be occupied by not only their, their internal kind of physiological states, but notably the, the environment surrounding them. And right, there, there's good reason for that. It relates to survival and the ability to scan and make sure that whatever's around you is, is safe for you to engage in. And so we are always in and embedded in an environment. Now, why do I emphasize that, that point? Well, what we are then doing as a coach is tapping into something that already exists. Like, let's be very clear here. We are not adding any machinery to the athlete. There are no strings on their body that we are pulling. You know, what we are seeking to do is influence this spotlight that we call attention, mm -hmm. which ultimately influences the, the perceptual information that is allowed into th this ecosystem that we call the human body. And so I think it's very important to recognize that. And just briefly, Adam, before we talk about the kind of cues that one can give, which you've already articulated rightly so as internal versus external, Let's just say something very briefly about uh, how many cues we should give independent of their content. Mm -hmm. And so this is where, of all the areas, I feel that coaches' behavior betrays their intuition. <laughs> what do I mean by that? Well, I think intuitively, if I was to ask you, you know, how many things do you think you can focus on at one time? let's say hitting a golf ball or during a squat or sprinting, whatever it might be. So moment to moment, obviously we know we can change what we focus on, but in a given moment, mm -hmm. which especially for a fast movement is all I have, how many things can I feasibly focus on? And usually people say ah, two to three, but, but I would challenge you, right? I would challenge everyone to, have to pause this video and I want you to put your hands on your hips and I want you to try to jump. And I want you to do your best to try to focus on extending your hips and dorsiflexing your ankles as you come off the ground. Try to do those things at the exact same time. And what you will find if you do that enough times, phenomenologically, which is to say you're experienced, you'll be able to flip between the two really fast, but you can't just think about one. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, there's actually this third thing you have to do, which is actually leave the ground. So you actually have to focus on the physical outcome itself, which is jumping. And so now you have jumping plus the cues I gave you, dorsiflex after you leave the ground and extend your hips as you're leaving the ground. And so even though I could give you those three cues and you could recite them back to me, all you're demonstrating is that your working memory is working. Mm -hmm. You can remember the three cues. Let's be very clear. Remembering those three cues is not the same thing as paying attention to them, or should I say paying attention through them? Ah, because that's what a cue is, right? A cue is a lens to see the world. Do I want to see the world through extending my hips, see the world through pushing the ground, see the world through trying to touch the ceiling, for example? And so when we, when we think about this, we oftentimes pretend our behavior suggests 
that we think the person can think about three different ideas simultaneously and somehow meld them together in some Frankenstein expression of the movement. Mm -hmm. That is not how we work at all. And you don't need to interrogate any more than your intuition driving into a new city to know that when you drive into a new city, you hit traffic, you turn down the radio, you drop the sandwich, you stop talking to the person in the passenger seat. You immediately organize your entire world around paying attention to one thing per moment of time, okay? And so as coaches then, we, Adam, if I'm teaching you how to jump, you and I can talk about jumping. And you know, in my book, I describe this as, you can describe a movement with a fair bit of detail, no problem. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to you actually performing the movement, I need to give you only one cue. How many addresses do you put in your GPS when you get in the car? One. Movement is no different. The whole system has to organize around achieving a given outcome. And so I'm quite literally disciplined in trying to build movement one cue at a time. A cue will sit alongside a longer narrative of a discussion about the movement, but that's to tease out the intellectual understanding of what they're going to do. That is not the same as their physical ability to do it. Mm -hmm. So the coaching cue is meant to literally help them perform the movement better. This is why you have athletes say, coach, I know what to do. I just don't know how to do it. Ah, the cue taps into the how to do it part, which is why now the next question is, once we recognize that, that one is the way we want to go, what should we actually say? And, and this lives on a, a continuum, as you rightly noted, that is flanked by internal cues and external cues. And the way I want people to visualize this in their mind is either one of two ways. We can think of it as we're, we're taking a zoom lens on a camera, you're zooming all the way into the micro unit of movement, let's say a joint or a muscle, or zooming all the way out to the macro uh, impact on the environment, push the ground away, or outcome I'm trying to achieve, jump as high as I can. At the same time, another way to think about this is, is the mind kind of as this spotlight that can only shine on so much mm. at a time. And we are shining that spotlight on the feature of the environment for which the person requires information to move better, okay? Either way, we get to the same breakdown of cues. So go something like this. If I zoom all the way into the body, I have what is called a narrow internal cue. A narrow internal cue is where you think about moving a single joint or activating a single muscle. And by the very nature of you're a person that use cues like that, you believe that movement is organized in a reductionist fashion. Now you might take offense to that, but here I'm gonna state that your behavior is the ultimate expression of your truth. <laughs> what you do, not what you say. And so if what you do results in language coming out of your lips that is specifically focusing predominantly on joint motion and muscle activation, you by that behavior suggest to me that you believe we organize movement by thinking about all of our joints one at a time, mm -hmm. or at the very least, we can emphasize one without disrupting the others, okay? I can then zoom your camera out just a bit from a narrow internal to a broad internal. And so what's a broad internal cue? That's a cue where I consider a collection of joints or muscles, and thus I reference a limb. So instead of saying explode through the hips, I might say explode through your legs 
or drive your leg back and drive your leg back during a sprint, let's say. So these collectively define an internal cue. It's any cue that asks you to focus on the body while you are moving the body. I want everyone to recognize that internal cues require you to sever the connection, not literally, but at least perceptually, you are severing the connection between them and the environment they're moving in because you're asking them to prioritize their body motion rather than the impact of that body motion on the environment where the ultimate outcome lives. And so that in itself should start to tell you something about the relative effectiveness of that kind of cue. Mm. From there, we can continue to zoom our camera out into what I call a hybrid cue. And so a hybrid cue blends internal with external. So drive your leg into the ground. And so that's great. Now we start to introduce this environment. We are reconnecting you to the matrix so to speak, and now the environment comes back on board. We can then recognize that, hold on, if I simply tell you to push the ground away in a jump, you are your coordination. You are your movement. It's not like there's mind and body. No, they, they are one and the same, i.e. Descartes' error. And so here we find that if I just tell you to explode off the ground in context, it is implied that you will use your legs to do that. Mm-hmm. More than implied, it suggests to you how you should do that because the word explode suggests far more violence and effort than the word push, let's say. Mm-hmm. And so now we can start to get into how our physical words like literally manifest themselves in our motor system in not, not a figurative sense, but in a literal sense. So we call that cue then, push the ground or explode off the ground, a close external cue in the case of, let's say, a jump or a sprint, because the ground is close to me, it's right beneath me. I can then zoom the camera all the way out, typically to what we would just simply call the outcome or a far external cue. And so if I was doing a vertical jump, I might say jump as if to touch the ceiling or explode towards the finish line uh, in, in the case of the sprint. In both of those, the distance of the cue is farther away relative to me thinking about the ground. Now let's use a sport just to brighten that idea Anything where I focus on the racket or the club in tennis and golf, respectively, those are close external cues. Anything around ball trajectory, endpoint where I want it to be placed, Mm -hmm. uh, we would call those far external cues. Now, on that continuum, and I know you and I will get there, all everything I describe is what I call literal cues Mm -hmm. because I'm literally referencing a literal body or I'm literally referencing its interaction with a literal environment. And so these cues are based in reality, such that they are based in things that actually exist in that moment. And so if we have literal cues, then we also have what we might refer to as figurative cues, or what I like to call virtual cues. And these are the cues that are used from a imagery perspective, And we tap these through the use of analogy and metaphor. And so if I maintain my sprinting and jumping examples, if I would say, as you explode off the line, gradually rise like a jet taking off. Now there is no literal jet taking off next to me, but I can run that virtual perception. Yeah, that virtual perception of a plane taking off. And because I actually have to use my sensory motor visual system to do that, I can map some of the features of that visualization 
onto my present body, my present form. And I can say, okay, a, just as a jet gradually rises, I can move as if I am a jet gradually rising and mm -hmm. map the improvements onto my body. And so if we take that full continuum, there are six stages there if you are counting. We think of it as a zoom lens or a shifting of spotlight, whatever analogy you prefer. What we now know is uh, we're not sure about hybrid cues yet, Adam, mm -hmm. but I'm going to give my, my intuition here. So my intuition is that hybrid, close external, far external and analogies behave. This is an important word for me. They behave in a similar way within the motor system, within how they encourage and promote better movement patterns. And that behavior of what they promote is different than if we draw that line in the sand of our narrow and broad internal cues. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately then if you go to the literature, this is why you see chiefly studies categorically look at internal versus external, specifically looking at at the very least, how do those relatively impact performance in the moment? Meaning as I'm hearing the cue, does it help or hinder? And then notably how they possibly improve movement long-term as we defined earlier as learning. And at present, I cover it in my book at nauseum, even though I don't necessarily focus on going through the literature verbally at nauseum, all of that detail is in the book and referenced through narrative and storytelling. Yeah. Uh, but equally, I have a book next to me, Attention and Motor Skill Learning by Dr. Gabrielle Wolf, the real pioneer in this space, if I take all that plus well over 200 papers by my estimates right now, there's easily by, again, my estimates, 90% agreement in the findings. Mm -hmm. And you probably understand what those findings are. And that is that when we promote movement through the lens of an external cue or an analogy, we're not only going to typically see better performance in the moment, but here's the important piece we tend to see better learning long-term. Mm -hmm. So there is something about external cues and analogies that have staying power. They seem to be sticky. Not only that they are more cognitively memorable, literally, but they actually manifest in better lasting movement and arguably movement that doesn't require a lot of rule buildup. If I was to tell you to explode off the ground as you're sprinting, even if you were in the finals of the Olympics, Nothing about exploding off the ground is going to betray the outcome you are trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. But if you revert back to thinking about extending your hips, knees, and ankles while you're trying to explode off the line as fast as you can relative to a gun going off, ah, those might not necessarily be the mental uh, thoughts you want resonating when you're trying to perceive the bang of a gun. Yeah. And so we start to realize that not only are external cues and analogies better for promoting movement, but promoting movement that can be expressed when it matters. And at least in my world, that's in sport. Yeah, I love that. The The last statement that you just made, I think was a, a really big one that the internal cues can cause you to almost overthink. And if you think about specifically, like you use the idea of sprinting in the Olympics, if you think about the blocks and the fractions of a second that people win by, and how how much you know a gold medal to no medal at all can like the difference in the timing and how long it might take you to go through okay send the hips send the knees and the yeah, you know yeah. going to plant like 
overthinking, you can actually, it can cause you to take more time in order to complete all of those steps in your own brain when you're overthinking it. The other thing that I'm thinking as well is that within an external cue, it's almost like you are building a, and you call them perfectly virtual cues, yeah. right? Um, but you, you are building this image of a new environment, right? And so if we think about motor learning, well, the environment teaches you, it's, if you constrain it, it teaches you what's going on, like how to complete the action, whether it's stairs or a bike or any other one of those, uh, you know, monkey bars or something like that. It's the same thing when you're thinking about verbal cues, those external cues and those metaphors and analogies, they, they create an environment that then helps you then perform the learning, right? So it's a virtual environment, but it's an environment nonetheless. So I think that's a great way to think about that. Well, I'm really happy that you came to that idea because that's the idea that I'm, I'm promoting and even the way that I'm phrasing it when I'm talking about analogies in that analogies pull from a former self, meaning there was a former self that literally perceived a jet taking off. There was mm -hmm. a, a formal, a former self that, uh, perceived what it was like to walk along a cliff's edge when you went to the Grand Canyon, recognizing that if one was to sprint along a cliff's edge, they want to stay pipe straight, right? One has walked down the hallway, a narrow hallway of a crappy hotel, and to know that if I'm a baseball pitcher and I want to keep a very straight and narrow stride, that trying to pitch down a narrow hallway would require that movement to be straight and narrow. And so you're exactly right. We are able to collaborate with our former perceptual selves. Mm -hmm. It's such a beautiful way to think about it, that we take a concrete real life perceiver perceived moment, and we're able to map those learnings, those experiences, which are literally embedded in the sensory motor nervous system. They literally exist there. That when I think about this former narrow hallway, my sensory motor system lights up, right? So I'm able to tap that existing information and simply repurpose it mm -hmm. or take a portion of it and repurpose it and move as if, move yeah. as if. And this is why we call them, or at least I call them cognitive constraints. Yeah, They're called a cognitive constraint because of all the things I possibly could focus on, I am selectively asking you to put your spotlight here. I love it. So let's talk a little bit about analogy and metaphor now, because we've, we've kind of brought it up, brought it up a little bit. So can you just talk a little bit about the application of those and what really makes a good analogy and a good metaphor for a specific athlete, sport client that we're working with? Yep. Yep. So uh, again, the, the answer to this question can be revealed in, in the answers to some of the questions you've already asked, which, which is great because again, we're scaffolding, we're building a, a density of understanding that is pulling from these same fundamental principles. And so a couple of different things. Number one, it goes right on back to the same exact answer I gave when we talked about 
how to come up with constraints. You need to be remarkably clear, right, in terms of what you are seeking to change. Because in what you are seeking to change, could be knee alignment, could be squat depth, posture, could be rhythm, right, could be power, doesn't matter. Whatever you're seeking to change in the movement needs to be implied, right? Implied, mm -hmm. meaning it doesn't need to be explicitly stated. It needs to be implied in the analogy. And when something is implied, it allows you to gain the meaning without having to explicitly go through all the detail that led to it. And so this is by its very definition, how habits are formed, how you learn to ride a bike. All of a sudden you find yourself making coffee the same exact way every day and you don't know how you got there. That's because something about your coupling in the environment implied that you are gonna behave in such a way. And so this is where analogies can be powerful, right? They can reveal complexity without explaining it, right? They can reveal complexity without explaining them. Tahara Arendt quote. And so I love that, especially applying it to analogies. And so once I've identified what needs to change, let's, let's stick with some examples we've used. Let's stick with sprinting. And let's say instead of front side mechanics now, we're really not happy with their pushing, right? They're not getting enough extension. They're short striding it. And you've used all the cues. You've pushed the ground away. It doesn't work. Extend the hips. The knees doesn't work. And you're struggling here. And you can't come up with a good constraint. So we're, we're, we're certain that we've identified the right error, but we haven't figured out how to make a change. The next thing that we have to do is we have to summon an analogy that captures that, mm -hmm. that implies that. So let's go through a couple different ways. If I was to tell you to, I want you to explode off the line like a rattlesnake, and I might even make a was about to bite your ankle, and I might even rev this thing up. I, I want you to see that rattlesnake. It is behind you. Fangs are up. Tail is rattling. It is two feet behind your ankle. I need you to beat the bite. Beat the bite. And so what I'm doing there in that example is I'm using what I call a scenario-based analogy. Mm -hmm. And so a scenario-based analogy is where you think about another scenario that would require the same movement. And I would argue sprinting away from the bite of a snake would require sprinting <laughs> and quite a bit of rapid extension to get away from it. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's, that's one example that we might give, you know, another one that we might use is, uh, bend the track, right. Or squash the track. Th these are some words that might start to put some visuals in the mind or spin the earth would have been a cue that I would have used in the past to really get that sense of driving backwards. Mm -hmm. And what all of these things are doing is they're trying to promote as a constraint would, they're trying to promote an emphasis on pushing through the very nature of what they are visualizing. That if I was actually in that scenario, I would have to get more pushing to get it done. And that's why it's, it's great to think of it as a cognitive or virtual constraint. Now, We've identified the error. We've identified a, a, an analogy that relates to that error. But now step three, which relates to step two, is the analogy is only going to work if they are familiar with it. Mm -hmm. 
And that familiarity has some texture to it. I want them to be familiar such that they have actually had that real life perceptual experience. So someone who's grown up in Arizona, who is constantly surrounded by the discussion and the artwork of rattlesnakes mm -hmm. is going to be far more sensitized to that than maybe someone, I don't know, who, who, who grew up in Canada. I don't know if they have rattlesnakes <laughs> up there, okay? And so we can see right there that even though you might principally be familiar with rattlesnakes, you know what one looks like, definitely the sound, you've seen one on TV, it might not have, uh, pun intended, the potency that your emotional system might require to mm -hmm. really make it stick. But because I did a lot of coaching in Arizona, and a lot of my athletes like me hated snakes, something like that was a pretty good scenario-based mm -hmm. analogy to use. Okay, so that's familiar. And then the other piece is there just has to be a general connection to the analogy that the person must find it in some way interesting to think about. You know, why do we like rhyme? Why do we like alliteration, right? There's certain ways of phrasing. Why do we like Dr. Seuss? There's certain ways of phrasing information mm -hmm. that just create this pleasant experience, right? So we have an aesthetic, like seeing art. We have an aesthetic experience when we see a great presenter, when we hear a great song. And I believe that's exactly what happens when someone really connects with your cue is that they almost have this aesthetic experience. It's pleasant to think about. They, they get this joy. And so when that is met with its relevance to the error and solidified with them having a real experience, thus it's familiar to them, you're going to be getting light bulb moments. You're mm -hmm. going to see these brilliant changes, rapid changes in movement. And there will be memorability and staying power in the queue such that they'll continue to think about it. And how do I know this to be true? Over the years of coaching, as I've used more analogies, I've had more athletes start regurgitating my analogies back to me. <laughs> and so I would even have athletes, you know, when I would do the NFL combine stuff, we, 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 would, we would, even for me, I considered myself an amateur freestyler back in college. A lot of them like to freestyle rap. And so we would joke, they would turn the analogies into the names of rap songs. And this is a true story. And that would, they'd be riffing on these anytime I came up with a new analogy. And so there was almost this kind of cultural phenomenon around the language we were using mm -hmm. that took on an importance beyond just the coaching of movement, if that makes sense. Yeah. And there really was this artistic experience with it. And so to summarize there, you need to know what the error is. You need to make sure your analogy implies that that error could not be possible if they perform as suggested in the analogy. And they need to be familiar, but familiar with the analogy at a deep, interesting, almost motivational way. And that the analogy is emotive, right? We, we have movement. Well, we want to emote this energy. It sticks with us in our emotional system such that we can't shake it the memorability helps with its potency when it comes to impacting movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. That's fantastic. And I love the rap. I, I wish some of that was recorded or something. Cause I'd love to hear some of those freestyle raps yeah. of your analogies. I think the depths of YouTube, there's plenty. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's some events at, uh, at both my wedding and perform better 
that most certainly have some uh, Warren D regulators freestyled over. That's that awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. That's something I'll probably have to do this evening. So I want to just ask, uh, cause I'm just being mindful of time here. Uh, one last question that I want to get to. Um, and it's just the difference uh, and it might be a very simple answer and that's fine. But is there a difference because I've worked a lot in rehabilitation as well as being a strength coach? Is there a difference in specifically early on in a rehabilitation process where we're trying to, let's say we've got somebody with an ACL injury, we're not doing a lot of gross motor movements, it's probably a lot more, you know, quad extension, hamstring curl, calf raise. So is there a difference then in the cueing of those and working our way through that continuum that you that you provided going from the narrow based internal cues and working our way through that? It, would that be different than in the training environment like you were speaking of? So uh, the, the, the short answer is we don't fully know, right? I mean, this is the question I get all the time is there a, a, a Mike Boyle? It depends somewhere in here. <laughs> and th this might be a scenario where it depends. So a couple things. If we, if we go to the literature and, and we haven't talked a lot about this because it's, it's not necessary for applying these principles, but if we actually start to look at some of the neurophysiology and neuromechanics where we're peering in through EMG and fMRI and, and, and TMS and some of these various other ways to interrogate the mechanisms behind the, the external focus benefit as it's often referred. We can reveal uh, some possible answers here on whether or not, for example, internal cueing might play a role in, in early rehabilitation. So, so let me go through some of those. When we look at giving someone an internal cue, uh, let me give the very specific example of a study that they looked at plantar flexion. Mm -hmm. And so they put an individual in basically an isometric dorsiflex position, uh, put on a force platform, and they played around with two different cues, right? Cue number one was to squeeze the calf muscle. Uh, cue number two was to push through the platform. So there's your internal and your external. Now, let's start with the external. When you give them the push to the platform cue, you get a strong activation of kind of the calf complex, as you'd expect. And then you get a quieting near to zero of the tibialis anterior. Mm -hmm. And so if, if we look at this whole idea of reciprocal inhibition, right? Sherrington's law, we know that when we activate a muscle on one side of the joint, for it to fully do its job, the other side needs to relax to, to some degree. Mm -hmm. We also know that when you are, are rehabbing or when you're learning a movement for the first time, you get this tremendous co-contraction, which is an effort to stabilize a joint and limiting, as we say, degrees of freedom. And so, okay, that, that's really interesting. But we know those de degrees of freedom are released over time mm -hmm. to allow for more fluid, effective coordination. And again, that involves, if I'm doing a jump, the, the glutes firing and the anterior hip muscles not firing as well. Otherwise, theoretically, I go nowhere and there's a handbrake on the front of the hip. Mm -hmm. 
so this what's made this is what makes narrow internal cues especially narrow internal cues that reference a muscle so interesting because when they told them to squeeze the calf guess what happens both the calf and the tibialis anterior fire mm -hmm. and so there's this generalized generalized co-contraction in the vicinity of the muscle or joint being referenced now if you were to tell me that one of the reasons you are giving an internal cue is to not only get heightened emg in the muscle you're referencing but you're perfectly fine with co-contraction on the other side then by definition use internal cues because mm -hmm. that's exactly what they do but if you are trying to promote muscle activation alongside coordination, ah, then external cues are going to be where you want to begin. Um, ultimately, if someone was to come watch me coach, I'm not like this militant person that doesn't make reference to the body. Again, in chapter four of my book, I present what is called the coaching communication loop where I explicitly carve out the home for internal language and what I call describing a movement, as well as in how we debrief or give feedback around the movement. So there's plenty of place to educate the person around their body. And this is important for rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, here's what we know about rehab. We know that the person is likely already going to come in with a heightened awareness of the injured area which is to say a heightened internal focus. Mm -hmm. We know that through rehab, there's likely to be a heightened co-contraction already around the injured area, logically because they're trying to protect it as they should in early stage rehabilitation. We also know that physical therapists, and this is true of strength coaches, currently in the literature tend to prioritize the use of internal language more than external. Many mm -hmm. studies have that being anywhere between 60-40 to 80-20. And so now we see this perfect storm of people primarily using internal language to reference someone who's already internally focused, using an internal focus causing co-contraction that builds on top of a, a, a natural affinity for co-contraction. The risk we run is at what point do we pivot? Mm -hmm. At what point do we start to prioritize coordination? And then I'd argue coordination in a context. And so the reality is when you're doing isolated work and you're trying to palpate and regain activation at a local level, I think there's good merit with tactile feedback to use an internal cue, squeeze this muscle. But the second coordination in context becomes the priority, which is gonna happen for many of the movements early in rehab, we shift to an external. An, extra an external cue takes on a superior importance in rehab because you already have a person who's internally focused themselves, mm -hmm. let alone a therapist guiding them to focus on their body as well. And so if we want to start to go through the psychological healing that involves trust and commitment and a, a trust in one's coordination, Hippocratic oath, do no harm. We have to make strong arguments for the importance of promoting external cues verbally or through a constraint-led approach. It has far-reaching positives beyond just the movement. And in this case, I'm talking psychologically because we know that in many athletes, 
It's their ability to have self-belief and psychological certainty and resilience that plays a huge role in not re-injuring mm-hmm. and that return process. Yeah. Look at how many re-injuries we have on the ACL, which creates tremendous psychological uncertainty in that, in that limb. Yeah. And so uh, if I can reference Anne Benjamins and Ali Gokler, these are two Dutch researchers in the physical therapy space doing unbelievable work promoting exactly what I just riffed on there. Yeah, I think that's uh, amazing uh, and very insightful with what you just said. And, and your description was spot on with the injured individual always already being very internally focused. And once again, getting to the point where what does squeeze a muscle even mean, <laughs> right? Like, like a muscle can contract and it can relax or so, but it's still going to perform a movement unless it's isometric. So unless I want an an isometric contraction with that internal cue, having an external focus and focusing on the outcome movement that we're looking for, even if it's like, right? Like even if it's, it's at that close external cue, that's still looking at the movement rather than just a contraction going on in a muscle. And so I think, you know, when you think about individuals who maybe like aren't athletes, aren't moving near as much as, uh, you know, are more sedentary in their lifestyle, the ability to be self-aware enough to know what somebody's saying when they say squeeze your calf or contract your calf, they probably have no yeah. idea. It doesn't land with many people. I mean, the, the reality is just because we can think about controlling one muscle doesn't mean you should. Yeah. And I, I can just say this with great certainty. That's not how motor control works. Yeah. You might walk around thinking that we can control our body one joint, one muscle at a time. And many coaches coach as if that's their belief. We've said this earlier. Mm-hmm not how it happens. No. And so part of my journey is a re-education of the movement profession. And we have to recognize that there's some fundamental truths around how movement is organized. And we betray many of them in how much we say yeah. and what we say. And it's time for us to change if we want to really elevate this industry beyond just the, the physical technology of our footwear and our surfaces. If we actually want to make a bigger difference, I am telling people this is the space to pursue because it is utterly untapped in conventional viewpoints. And once this does, once what we're talking about no longer is worthy of a podcast, yeah, guarantee we are going to see an exponential shift in the quality of movement across humanity. I love it. And I'm a huge advocate of it. And um, I will continue to tell people to buy your book because I think it's, uh, yeah, well, it's, it, just even flipping through, uh, I've read a couple chapters, but flipping through and just seeing some of the the images that you provide and the simplicity, like depth of of knowledge, depth of, depth of information, but the simplicity of application of it, specifically with some of the images that you have and you show like the spin dial when you're going through the three different pieces of of a really good external cue uh, and you've got images of jumping and like, okay, how might you, you can, these are different cues that you could give in this scenario. This is how you could shorten this. And just the ability of a trainer or strength coach to pick it up and apply it right away. Um, it just makes it a great resource for, for any new or experienced coach or personal trainer. So just uh, well, thank that, you for putting that, that out. Being able to hide complexity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wrote the book using the principles the book is on. Yeah, it's phenomenal. 
All right. Quick little finish up. I know we're a little bit over time, but quick little finish up here. Uh, it's a little bit of a lightning round. I like to ask three questions at the very end. And uh, it's always interesting because it gives me more books to read and uh, people to, to research and follow. So first question is the top three books on any topic. Oh, goodness. I, I, I worry that the ones I'm currently reading right now um, will not be of, of, of normal conventional interest. But uh, you asked me the question, so I'll give you the answer. The books I'm reading right now, they're in front of me. Uh, one is called Out of Our Heads, Out of Our Heads by Alva No, in no way, it's N-O-E, uh, Out of Our Heads. Uh, the second one is Philosophy in the Flesh, The Embodied Mind and Its Challenge to Western Thought. That's by George Lakoff and Mark Johnson. And then the, uh, the one I'm about to get into is How the Body Shapes the Mind by Sean Gallagher, okay? And so all three of these books have the commonality of explaining how we co-create our movements, our mm -hmm. reality, our truth and meaning between the perceiver and the perceived. They're all fighting Descartes' error of, of separating mind and body, and they're trying to glue us back into the real world that we find ourselves in. Love it. I haven't read any of those, so I will put those on my my to-read list. I love it. Uh, okay, next top three mentors along your journey thus far. Guido Van Rysigum, for sure. Uh, Rudy, as as my high school strength coach, and and I have to give credit to Mark Verstegen. Awesome. I figured, I figured Mark, I, like you've mentioned all three of those names already today in the podcast. So I'm like, I, I, think I already it. know. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm consistent if anything. Yeah. Um, all right. And last one is any advice that Nick of today would say to 20 year old Nick? Yeah, uh, I, I like, I like this one. Um, I would I definitely wouldn't go back and change anything. Mm -hmm. And because I think it's, it's in the struggle that we gain the clarity. And so let me, let me just put it that way. The one thing that I would say, and if you ask me this question in 20 years, I'm going to probably give you the same answer. <laughs> Be patient, but keep going. Mm. That's it. Be patient, that. but keep going. Awesome. All right. Um, Last thing, and I already know the answer, but I'll ask anyways, because it's always a question. Any products that you would like to promote? <laughs> Listen, everything I've ever done is completely open source. We, you and I even opened up talking about all the videos I've done uh, for Exos. Listen, the, the language of coaching, the art and science of teaching movement, it comes with a price tag, but it took over 10 years of me thinking to, to get it out. And there's hundreds of years of evidence that I'm standing on the shoulders of giants for. So for whatever it is, 30 bucks, the language of coaching, go get it. Awesome. I already did. So um, yeah, great investment for anybody who's a movement coach or in the fitness rehabilitation field is coaching, actually coaching in any field, irregardless of whether it's in the, uh, the strength and movement profession. And um, where can people go to find more about you, Nick? Yeah, I have, I've, I've done all these virtual book clubs and whatnot and, and, and webinars on this topic. It's thelanguageofcoaching.com. So it's all there. You can sign up and, and 
anything that comes out, you'll be on the mailing list. Obviously, at Nick Winkleman for Twitter and Instagram will give you the, the fresh views. I just put on a, a 19-post Twitter thread on many of these topics. So, so that's on Twitter right now for, for consumption. And listen, if anyone wants to uh, email or ask questions, it's info at thelanguageofcoaching.com. Awesome. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming on, taking the time, two hours to, to chat and um, give the audience uh, some clarity and some direction in how to coach better so that we can not only improve our clients, but improve this industry as well. So I thank you for all the work that you've put in and for uh, taking the time today. Thanks so much, Adam. Appreciate it. State of the Industry Podcast. I'll be back.